let's uh, let's start in prayer. I think we should also pray that we can get something on the screen because this was hard to preach with slides earlier today. So without them, I'm slightly nervous, uh, but hopefully something will come up. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to know more of you. Please guide my words this morning. Let them be faithful. And Father, give us all hearts to treasure more deeply the glory of the good news of your grace. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I'm going to stick my neck out this morning and say that this passage in Genesis 15 is probably the most amazing passage in the Bible. The Apostle Paul actually refers to this passage simply as the gospel. And I think we we often assume that it's not until we come to the life of Jesus in the New Testament that we then witness this amazing picture of love and grace. But actually, Paul's analysis of this passage reveals that the grace of God abounds right from the very first book of the Bible. And so my simple aim for this morning is to show you how the gospel, the good news of God's grace for us through Christ, is evident in this story and in so doing to help you to treasure it more deeply. But now you'd be excused here for not necessarily seeing the grace of God straight away because it's a fairly obscure passage, definitely not a good passage for vegetarians. We've got a load of animals lined up, some sort of massacre takes place, and then we have Abraham in a trance watching a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot go between these animal pieces. So it's all a bit grisly and fairly surreal at first glance. And I think in order for us to be able to make any sense of it all, there is a bit of context that we need first. The passage is called God's Covenant of Grace or God's Covenant with Abraham. And the clue's in the title because we need to know something about covenants before we can unlock the majesty of God's grace here. Well, now, like many things in the church, there are slightly differing views on how covenants work. I've provided some reference material where you can look at the wider options for yourself. The view I'm presenting this morning is fairly commonly held, but it's a subject that isn't taught that often, and so therefore not everyone has a view. And I think that's a real shame because hopefully, as we'll see this morning, covenants give us a really clear framework to better understand the gospel through. So let's, let's take a quick look at what covenants are all about. This is like the, uh, the science part, and we've got some slides to help us along. So, thank you. Although we don't use the term covenant much today, the best way to think of it is like a marriage. A marriage is probably the most covenantal relationship that you can have. It's both the most legally binding and the most loving relationship you can enter into. And so a covenant holds within it this amazing combination of both law and love. Now, there are several covenants in the Bible. If we can have the next slide, please. God makes covenants with his people through Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, and of course through the new covenant. Now, the eagle-eyed among you will notice that there are a couple of covenants uh, missing there, one with Noah and another with Israel, for example. But the covenants that I'm showing here on screen are all part of the same covenant known as the covenant of grace and the way it works is this which we'll we'll see on the next slide please each of these individual covenants acts effectively like a, 
an update or a contract renewal to the one overarching covenant of grace. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 5 that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because the new covenant through which he gives us his blood is actually just the conclusion of this one overarching covenant of grace. And actually the promise that's made through this one covenant is made to Jesus himself. It's made to Abraham's offspring, singular, which is Jesus. Um, But the good news is, as Paul explains in his letter to the Galatians, if we're in Christ, if we have faith in Jesus, then this covenant promise extends to us as well, to all those who are in Christ. So even though many of us here will have entered by faith in Christ into the new covenant, we're essentially entering into the same agreement that's made here with Abraham some 4,000 years ago. And that's why I think it's so important to understand this passage so that we know in a wider sense what we're agreeing to and what we're letting ourselves in for. Well, now the next thing to know is that these covenants always have the same basic structure. If we could have the next, the next slide. They always contain a set of conditions to uphold. And if the conditions are kept, blessings are received. But if the conditions are broken, curses are received instead. So it's fairly straightforward stuff. If you do what you agree to do, you get blessed. But if you break your promise, you get penalized. Or in the Bible's language, you receive the curse of the covenant. Now, the conditions, the blessing, and the curse remain essentially the same throughout the entire covenant of grace. And if we could have the next slide, please. What you'll see here on screen again is that the condition in the middle in black is always faith. The blessing in blue, top right, is always to be with God in paradise forever. And finally, the curse in red is always separation from God and ultimately death. Now, we don't have time this morning to look at each covenant update individually, but if we did, what you would notice is that the detail and the shape of the agreement expands over history with each update. So, for example, the location where God is going to dwell with the faithful people moves from Canaan to Jerusalem to our own hearts, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and finally to a new heavens and a new earth in the age to come. But despite those and other developments, despite the fact that God is clearly on the move throughout history, what's really important to see is that this core structure on screen is actually consistent throughout all of the updates, throughout the entire Bible. And actually the blessing of God dwelling with the faithful people in paradise forms the central spine and narrative to the entire Bible. And if we could have the next slide, please. From Genesis right through to Revelation, the Bible rings out with this same simple promise of God dwelling with the faithful people in paradise. Uh, Genesis 17 says, And I will give to you and your offspring all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Second Corinthians, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So what we can know from that very quick 
cross-section of Scripture, and there are many other similar verses, is that the Bible is one single story tied together through this central spine, through this theme of God's covenant promise to be with his people in paradise. Well, before we go back to the passage, there's just one final thing to know about covenants, and it's maybe the most important thing. If we could have the next slide, please. There's a direct relationship between the curse of the covenant and the oath of the covenant. If you take the oath, you're effectively then legally bound to take upon yourself the curse or the penalty should you ever break the agreement. And so the taking of the oath is hugely significant. And in all of the covenant updates throughout the entire Bible, the oath is only ever taken once. And it's right here in Genesis 15. This strange ceremony with the cutting up of the animal pieces was actually the enactment of taking the oath of the one covenant of grace. So how did it work? Well, let's just say, for example, that Danny and I were going to make a covenant agreement. And what you folks didn't know is that Danny is actually the king of Hazelmere. Uh, Dev's probably knew, but the rest of us were in the dark. And I, I'm just a lowly peasant. You knew that already. So Danny outranks me massively, both in life and in this illustration. Um, what would happen is that I would chop up some animal pieces, lay them down, and Danny and I would stand at, other, at each end of this corridor of animal pieces. We would then make the terms of our agreement, whatever that might be, and then I would walk between the pieces. And what I'm saying when I walk between the pieces is that if I don't uphold my side of the agreement, my body will be broken and my blood will be shed just like these animals. Now, because Danny is the king of Hazelmere and is therefore of much higher rank than me, he would never have to walk between the pieces. In other words, his body isn't on the line if he breaks his side of the bargain, but if I break my side of the bargain, it's curtains for Ross Cunningham. So that's how these curses or penalty clauses were enacted and sealed through this rather odd ceremony. In walking between the animal pieces, you were effectively giving your blood oath to seal the deal and to take upon yourself the curse of the covenant should you ever break the agreement. Now, although naturally enough, we can read through a passage like this and be utterly confused by all this at first reading, these ceremonies would have been prevalent at the time, and so Abraham would have understood the significance of this. And I imagine he'd have been absolutely petrified. You know that sort of gut-wrenching anxiety in your stomach? Because Abraham was about to make a covenant agreement, not with the mere mortal king of Hazelmere, but with the creator of the universe. And so, being somewhat outranked, Abraham would have been fully expecting to walk between the pieces himself, and therefore to take upon himself the oath and the potential curse. Can you imagine being in his sandals? Imagine having the risk of death hanging over you if you break your promise. But now let's, let's go back to the passage with what we now know about covenants in that very quick overview. And let's look at what happens to Abraham in verse 17. It's an incredible outcome, and it's certainly not the outcome that Abraham would have expected. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, 
A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. We can have the next slide, please. So, Abraham never has to walk through the pieces. Instead, a flaming torch, which represented God, goes through this corridor of carcasses on his behalf. God steps in and takes the oath instead of Abraham. Do you see the amazing grace here? Remember, this isn't just a king outranking his subject. That would be gracious enough, as Paul puts it in Romans. For someone will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And yet here we have the most righteous being in the universe, a completely holy God, taking an oath to potentially die, to take the curse of this covenant, not for a peer, not for a good person, not even for a righteous person, but for us, for us. And I think to really see the magnitude of this grace, we need to hold up God's holiness and remember who he is, because it's not even the case that we can say he outranks us. He doesn't compare. See, to be holy means to be set apart. Holiness comes from this idea of the word to cut. So it's like if you're, you're chopping vegetables or something, and as Emma will concur, I can often be found chopping vegetables uh, around the house. And you use the knife to cut and separate, to cut and separate. When you separate something after cutting, you're setting apart the best stuff. The offcuts go to the bin, but the stuff that you've set apart has a higher purpose and a greater value. That's the whole idea of being holy, to be of higher value. And God is infinitely holy and therefore of infinite, infinite value. And in our current broken human condition, we can't stand in the presence of a completely holy God. We're not holy enough on our own merit to bear the weight of his glory. That's one of the reasons that he appears in this story as a flaming torch. It's because we're not capable of experiencing him yet in his fullness. It's also the reason why the main work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to make us holy. It's so that we can eventually be holy enough to bear the weight of God's glory, to stand in his fullness of presence, and therefore to be able to do the very thing that he's offering us here, to dwell with him again. So that's the nature of, of the one who takes this oath on our behalf, the most holy God, so vast, so full of glory, so infinite in value, so not like us that we can't fully comprehend him. And I, I wonder if the grace of God stepping through these animal pieces on your behalf if that doesn't seem hugely gracious to you this morning, I mean, in your heart of hearts, if it doesn't seem hugely gracious, I wonder if you lost sight of the vastness of God, of the holiness of God. Has he maybe become too small or too familiar in your thinking of him? Well, that's, that's a hard thing to hold on to. At least I find it hard. How can we keep sight of God's holiness when it's something we can't fully comprehend? I keep a, a verse on the wall in my study which says, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
It's from the book of Job, and it's there simply to remind me that God's holiness, God's greatness, is way beyond my understanding. It's there to help me overcome this tendency that I have to over-familiarize God, to make him fit into my thinking, to make him, therefore, too much like me, too small, and so to minimize his grace. But here this morning, we remember that we have a big, big God walking through these animal pieces on our behalf. And it's hugely gracious because he's of infinitely more value than us. But it gets even more amazing because you'll have noticed on verse 17 uh, on screen there that both a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot go between these pieces. And what some of the commentaries on this passage note is that God actually goes through the animal pieces twice. He goes through once for himself and once for Abraham. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it means that not only will God take the penalty if he breaks his side of the bargain, he'll also take the penalty if we break our side of the bargain. In other words, what God is saying to, Abra to us through Abraham this morning is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. And if you cannot uphold your side of the bargain, if you cannot be a faithful people to me, my body will be broken for you and my blood will be shed just like these animals. And of course, with the benefit of history, we know that his body was broken for us because 2,000 years later, Darkness came down again, this time on Calvary. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, died on our behalf. He not only fulfilled the conditions of this covenant of grace by living a perfectly faithful life, obedient to God to the end, but he also took the curse of this covenant, dying for our inability to live perfectly faithful lives, dying so that we might be legally free to receive the blessings of this covenant so that we could be a people with God in paradise. That's why I think Paul calls this passage in Genesis 15, the gospel. And Paul would go to towns and cities and set up in public forums. And he literally debate and explain the gospel all day long. And he loved to argue with reason. And I think therefore it makes perfect sense that he related to this passage because it gives us the reason of the gospel. It gives us the why of Jesus' death. You see, I, I think we often try and explain the gospel from the inside out. You know, we'll, we'll say to someone, Jesus died for you. That's often our opening gambit, isn't it, if we're even brave enough to open at all. And they'll turn around and say, well, why did he die for me? And we're hardwired, we're sort of programmed to say, well, he died to take away your sin or to, to save you, which isn't wrong. But to which, if they have an inquiring mind, they ought to reply, but how does his death take away my sin? That immediately becomes the crux of someone's problem. How does his death out there take away my sin in here? And therefore, I think the natural response to that question is to try to explain how salvation works. In other words, we talk about the how of the gospel. How does Jesus' death save me? How does it take away my sin? rather than the why. Why did he die for me in the first place? And since the how is actually much more complicated than the why to explain, 
we run the risk of getting into very deep water. And at this point, you know, you can either start baffling them with the concept of substitutionary atonement, or you can use distraction techniques and say, look, uh, an angel, and then <laughs> make a run for it, which is probably your best bet at that point, since, you know, by now they're utterly confused anyway. But actually, this is where understanding this passage and understanding how covenants work is hugely helpful because it sets down clearly in history the reason that Jesus died for that person. He died simply because God made an offer of grace to humanity. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And when you cannot be a faithful people, I have taken this oath so that I can die for you to ensure that this promise stands forever. It's amazing, amazing grace. And so this morning we humbly remember that we have a creator God of infinite value who suffered at infinite cost to himself to ensure that this covenant promised to us stands, to ensure that we could receive the required condition of faith as a free gift, and to ensure that we could all be a people with him in paradise. That's the, the love that he has for us, and that's the grace that he offers to each one of us. And if you're here this morning and you, you maybe haven't entered into a covenant relationship with God, can I encourage you and invite you to come and speak with someone afterwards? Because, you know, a simple commitment of faith in Christ qualifies you to receive this eternal blessing, to be a part of a people with God in paradise. Amen. Well, what I'd, what I'd like to do just by way of response is to end, not on my own words, but on the authority of Scripture. And I'm going to put up just in a second on screen part of Paul's reflection or analysis, really, of this covenant of grace. Um, it's from Galatians 3. And actually, the whole chapter is worth a closer read. But in just a few very economical verses here, it brings together brilliantly so much of what I've tried to cover this morning. And so if we can have that up on screen, please, I'd like to just invite you to read and reflect on that yourselves for a few moments as we continue in worship. Thank you.